Saudi Arabia and Iran. We know this story. The two major Middle Eastern powers fighting endless proxy conflicts. Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Bahrain, you name it. Like I said, we know this story. The Saudis do what Western countries want but can't admit publicly. The Iranians act for the Russians and the Chinese. But I'm going to let you into a secret. We've been looking at everything from the wrong end of the telescope. The Saudi-Iran rivalry is driving us, not us driving them. It seems like we can't stop the Iranians from getting nukes, and it seems like the Saudis don't want to sell us oil at a price we'd like. In fact, almost every major geopolitical event of the past 40 years has been driven by a war we barely knew was happening. This is the Invisible War. In many situations of politics, uh, the choice really isn't between good and bad. It's really between bad and very bad. Self-interest over human rights, people's rights and democracy. I'm Arthur Snell. I was a diplomat in some of the most troubled places on planet Earth. And now I'm here to investigate the threats of today and warn you about the dangers of tomorrow. This is Doomsday Watch. I'm Kim Rattas. I'm a senior non-resident fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington. And I'm also the author of Black Wave, a book about Saudi-Iran rivalry over the last 40 years. Black Wave is really the product, as so many books, of a long journey of being surrounded by the culture, the geopolitics of a complicated region. But the central question that I kept bumping up against was what happened to us, a question that people ask themselves a lot in the region. When they look back at the lives that their parents or grandparents had, they look at their pictures, they see people riding bicycles by the Tigris River in, in, in Iraq, or they hear about musical evenings in Peshawar in Pakistan, um, they hear about fiery political debates and the bars of, of, of Beirut, there's just a generalized sense that we were almost a different country, a different region at some point. And I set out to find out when that point was, when did it change, what happened? I kept coming back to this cultural desertification that the region has been through again and again. And combining that with the events of 1979, I realized that that year was so pivotal because it wasn't just about the events of that year, but about the start of a change in, in, in culture and society and people's understanding of, of, of religion. One place you could start this story is 1979. Three things happened in that year, seemingly unconnected, which would come to define global events for the next four decades. The three events of 1979 are, of course, the Iranian Revolution, with the return of Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini to Iran after about a year of uh, protests in, in Iran, which toppled the Shah. This is the second largest army barracks in Tehran. Already we know a large proportion of soldiers in it have deserted to the Khomeini. And a revolution which had ostensibly started as leftist, nationalist, somewhat secular revolution with a religious element in it, but 
Khomeini's return to Iran turns this revolution into an Islamic revolution and turns Iran into an Islamic republic. The second event is the siege of the Holy Mosque in Mecca by Saudi zealots who want the kingdom to be even more conservative, less open to the West, and the House of Saud takes that on board and they, um, in essence, hand the keys of the kingdom to the clerical establishment. And Saudi Arabia, a very conservative kingdom, becomes even more conservative. And the third event is the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Ten years in Afghanistan, the Soviets, they launched a total war attack. That launches, of course, the war against the Soviets, in which the Saudis participate um, with funding and support for the Mujahideen. The Pakistanis are involved, and of course, America and the CIA are, are deeply involved. Some momentous events take place, and in the moment, you realize that this is pivotal. You know, in the Middle East, for example, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, uh, the Six-Day War in 1967. But what I found interesting about 1979 is that various events that took place that year were important in their own right at the time, but which now, in hindsight, are clearly the beginning of what I describe as the black wave. These events, which are at the onset not linked, become completely interlinked and launch these new dynamics. They change society, they change art and culture and even you know what people watch on television. It unleashes religion as a dominant factor in politics, in culture, um, and in militancy in ways that we had not seen before. Perhaps we need to go back to the genesis of all this. Is this about Sunni versus Shia, the great fault line from the first years of Islam, with Iran, the leader of global Shia Muslims, and the Saudis, custodians of the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, the self-appointed guardians of the larger tendency of Sunni Islam. Is this a revival of a sectarian struggle that goes back for thousands of years? Well, that's definitely part of the history. You know, it's been there since the days after the death of the Prophet. But the sectarian violence, as we've seen it over the last few decades, is not the norm. And neither is the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And that rivalry is unleashed by 1979, and it changes the region from a geopolitical perspective. And as they become rivals, um, Saudi Arabia, a dominantly Sunni country, and Iran, a dominantly Shia country, perfectly happy to be friends before as Sunnis and Shias, start using sectarian identities to rally people to their side. And in doing so, they unleash sectarian narratives, sectarian identities, and they weaponize sectarianism. There is a Sunni versus Shia element to this rivalry, but the confusing thing comes when we consider that Saudi Arabia was Sunni and Iran was Shia for a lot longer than they'd been at conflict. Iyad al-Baghdadi is a political activist and expert on the modern Middle East. Just that at this moment of time when Iran had 
an Islamic revolution. And the key word here is revolutionary. The Saudi monarchy is a very conservative monarchy, and it is very counter-revolutionary. It has always been counter-revolutionary. So it's all, it has always backed conservative forces over revolutionary forces, regardless what narrative these revolutionary forces uh, take. That's when it became, the, the relationship started to become increasingly toxic. And now the revolutionaries, the people of Tehran, are in there. They've set it alight and they're taking it over. As Kim Gattas has told us, it was the Iranian revolution that threw this into stark relief. But the individuals matter. Ayatollah Khomeini was completely integral to the Iranian revolution. Without him, it could never have happened. By a similar token, the Al Saud family are Saudi Arabia. Their conquest of Mecca and Medina in the early part of the 20th century and their continued absolute control of the country is definitive. It's what makes it Saudi Arabia rather than just Arabia. Professor Simon Mabin, an expert on the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran, takes us to Tehran. In terms of that rivalry, the revolution was a real game changer. The establishment of the Islamic Republic under the leadership of Rukhul Khomeini was the architecture of a state deriving legitimacy from Islam. It was vehemently anti-imperialist, anti-monarchist, and it provided support to what Khomeini termed the downtrodden of the Muslim world. And in doing this, of course, the Iranians positioned themselves against states such as Saudi Arabia. Uh, the departure of the Shah is not uh, the final victory, but it is the uh, preface to our victory. Ayatollah Khomeini had designs beyond Iran and beyond the community of Shias around the world. He wanted to be a leader of the Muslim Ummah, the nation. And in doing so, he started to tread on the turf of the Saudis, who had initially welcomed him. He spoke about the Quran, about conservative values, about Sharia. And they thought, okay, you know, we can do business with him. And perhaps if they dread some of his earlier writings, they would have realized that Ayatollah Khomeini did, did not see them as legitimate custodians of the two holy sites of, of Islam, Mecca and Medina. And at this point, you get this really vitriolic rhetoric coming out of Tehran, aimed at the al-Saud ruling family in Saudi Arabia. They were corrupt, impious traitors to the two holy places of Islam, Mecca and Medina. And there's this real sort of vitriolic attack on the Saudi leadership, which was viewed really negatively because the Saudis derived a lot of their legitimacy from Islam as well, albeit a different form of Islam. The Al Sauds originated as warlords in Central Arabia in the area around Riyadh. For them to take power, they had to align themselves with the ultra-conservative Wahhabist clerics that had redefined Islam and then later used the Saudis' incredible oil wealth to spread this vision worldwide. In 1979, the idea that the Saudis' power could be brought into question, that their credentials as Muslim rulers could be a subject for debate, this shook their credibility to its core. In the first series of Doomsday Watch, we spoke to Justin Sheck, author of a brilliant book about Mohammed bin Salman. Here's what he had to say about how power transfers in the Al Saud family. So under the modern Saudi kingdom, founder of the kingdom was King Abdulaziz. He passed the crown down to his favorite son, and he had dozens of sons. 
And from the time the crown first passed, it has gone from brother to brother to brother. As the crown passes from brother to brother, let's say Fod is king. And when Fod is king, Fod's family is great wealth and great power and, and great respect. And then, the, and then Fod dies and like the bin Fods, you know, the sons of Fod, like who, nobody talks about them anymore. They're sort of irrelevant. They, got, they have money, but you can go from having great power to being completely irrelevant overnight. So for you know, two centuries, the, the Saudi royal family, which has ruled and not ruled, they, they, their fortunes have waxed and waned, but their power stemmed from their alliance with conservative religious leaders. It's the seizure of the Grand Mosque in Mecca that is perhaps the most significant for the very fabric of the Saudi state at home. Because what this does is it points to serious criticisms from within the Saudi state that the ruling family is not religious enough. The Saudis have long endured this type of rhetoric and from outsiders, but this time it comes from within. So they start to feel like they need to do more to burnish their credentials, to proselytize, to push back against the Iranians. And one of the ways in which they start doing that is by supporting this war in Afghanistan. So they killed two birds with one stone. One is they export their own fundamentalists to Afghanistan to go and die over there, not in Saudi Arabia. And they take on this role of, you know, the defenders of the cause. And no one thought about the unintended consequences of what they created on the battlefields. So there, of course, we start to see groups like the Mujahideen and later Al-Qaeda that emerging from these fights, a violent form of political Islam from what happens in 1979. Saudi Arabia itself was a creature of religious conflict, literally founded through a marriage, a literal marriage between a monarch and a cleric. Iyad al-Baghdadi. The Wahhabi movement basically was allied with the Saudi monarchy. And uh, this is how the first Saudi state came to be. And it was actually, it was, you know, if you read its history, even their own written history, it was basically a religious extremist, violent movement, looking at all Muslims who are not them as kuffar, as infidels. You know, there is this battle for who represents Muslims and who represents the Muslim world and who is the central authority or the central power in the process. What happened is that we got sectarianized and what, what it means to be Muslim became Sunni and Shia. It's really about the whole idea of, uh, do we call it sectarianism or do we call it sectarianization? Is this about Western meddling or about Western dependence? There's a tendency in the West to see everything from our perspective. We meddle in the Middle East because we want their oil. But perhaps it's the other way around. We are sucked into a region we cannot understand because we need their oil. In episode one, we heard from Professor Helen Thompson on how the West's search for energy security defines modern geopolitics. Here's a clip. Sort of lens of energy security rather than kind of imperial domination. The point I wanted to draw out of the Suez crisis was really that it's both. But at the centre of it, I think, lies the fact that the 
British were doing what they were supposed to do. They were looking after the access of West European countries or the, the security around the access of West European countries to oil um, through the Suez Canal. And the Americans wanted the West European countries to import oil from the Middle East. The Americans didn't want West European countries to be importing oil either from the Soviet Union um, because of the Cold War or from the Western Hemisphere, including the United States itself. Um, because they wanted Western Hemisphere oil for the Americans. Um, so the British were supposed to act like an imperial power, but it was extraordinarily inconvenient for Eisenhower, um, both because Eisenhower was up for re-election um, and because it coincided with the Soviet invasion of Hungary. Eisenhower pulled the plug on what was the British plus French and Israeli operation. American efforts to try and create a multi-state alliance during the 40s and 50s, which incorporates the Saudis, the Iranians and the Iraqis, was driven by a desire to prevent Soviet incursion into the Middle East, and also to prevent the further spread of pan-Arabism, led by Egypt at this time. And representing Saudi Arabia comes King Ibn Saud, and a destroyer put at his disposal. The first U.S. vessel of its kind to pass through the Suez Canal during this war. The two men met on the USS Quincy in 1945. They did so to try and set out a relationship between the two states that would be increasingly influential over the coming decades. Now, the U.S. is recognizing the need for securing energy, securing gas and oil. And in return, the Americans will provide Saudi Arabia with security guarantors for decades to come. And so this kind of precipitated a situation where the alliance between, especially the Americans and the Arab monarchies in the Gulf, uh, continued to strengthen, especially after the petrodollar system was, was innovated. Uh, of course, the petrodollar system was essential to uh, the United States winning the, the Cold War because uh, you had a situation here where the USSR had to dig for oil. Meanwhile, the US, the United States could print money for oil. It, it did shape the beginning of conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia because there was this this uh, this conflict about who represents the West here or who is allied with the West here, who can be painted as carrying over foreign Western influence in the region versus who can be seen or who would be painted as a regressive force, etc. This isn't just about the US. The hunger for oil has driven many countries' behaviour it's also worth noting that the UK plays a really important role in the Middle East. Now, this is significant in a number of different ways. Perhaps most obviously at this time in the establishment of companies such as the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which was designed to help discover and refine oil in Persia. But in order for the British to capitalise on any of this, it meant extracting oil and thus capital at the expense of the Iranians themselves. And so what starts to happen is you get this rising nationalist sentiment. And you see in the early 1950s, this nationalist sentiment comes to the fore with the election of a democratic prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh. He wanted to nationalize all these oil companies and make sure that it was Iran that was getting the benefits and not London. Now, Washington and London didn't like this, and so they plotted together to overthrow the first democratically elected leader in the Muslim world. And what this does is generates a great deal of hostility against the UK and against the US, ultimately reaching a crescendo with the revolution and the hostage crisis that followed. When Iran 
my opinion, of American companies that want to resume business with Iran. I hope they're going to do it by long distance because we don't think their safety can be guaranteed there. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. The first major geopolitical event of the post-Cold War era was the 1990 Gulf crisis, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Saddam's Iraq, egged on by its Sunni Arab allies and with a measure of tacit support in the West, had invaded Iran in 1980, leading to an eight-year mass casualty war that cost more than a million lives. After the end of that war, Iraq was on its knees and was heavily indebted to its neighbour, Kuwait. Saddam made a terrible miscalculation, believing that he could seize Kuwait and its oil wealth and get away with it. So at this point, you've got this changing regional order with three states that formerly had relations with the US engaging in a struggle to dominate the Persian Gulf region. And what we quickly see is with the establishment of the Islamic Republic and Ayatollah Khomeini's explicit desire to export the revolution, you get states such as Iraq and Saudi Arabia who are incredibly nervous about what's going to happen next. And that's when you start to see conflict breaking up between Iraq and Iran because the Iraqis are worried. They're worried that Khomeini will try to spread the revolutionary ideology into Iraq and capitalize on a large Shia majority that had long been disenfranchised, that had long been marginalized and persecuted. And that's why Saddam was so keen to go to war, even though it cost both states a hell of a lot. A generation of Iranians was killed. And when Khomeini was signing the document that sealed the end of it, he talked of drinking a poisoned chalice because he was so unwilling to give up his goals of defeating the godless Ba'athists and Saddam Hussein. President Saddam Hussein, condemned by the outside world for ordering the use of chemical weapons in a war that cost more than a million lives, threw a giant party this month to celebrate the anniversary of the start of the conflict. Saddam Hussein also turned against the Saudis. At his base, Saddam was a secular, republican, revolutionary nationalist, his politics represented an existential threat to the Saudi conception of an absolute religiously validated monarchy. We all know what happened with Saddam. It's difficult to say ally here because, yes, they had good relations for a while and they were supporting Saddam when Saddam was engaged in a war against Iran. But then Saddam would later turn on them. And then Saddam would become an existential threat to many of these countries, uh, including, of course, Saudi Arabia. And then the Americans would come to their help. Another phase of the history of the region would start. And eventually we'd have the rise of, of a third party here, which is the terrorists. The origin of how Osama bin Laden and the early leaders of Al-Qaeda split off and splintered and considered themselves you know, no longer Saudi because the, for a long time they actually were proud of, their, of, of being Saudis really goes back to uh, 1991 and the responses to the American-led liberation of Kuwait. Bin Laden and his cohort thought that it's an affront to Islam to have foreign parties assist, you know, station in Arabia and assist this war. He actually offered his own brethren in arms who fought in Afghanistan, and he said, you know, we will fight, we will liberate Kuwait. 
and it might be another jihad front and might even help with proselytization, etc. Of course, that did not happen, and uh, that led to his country excommunicating him and him excommunicating his country. Of course, not a total divorce, but the beginning of something like that between the Saudi state and the Saudi religious elements. Yesterday, United States military forces captured Saddam Hussein, and now the former dictator of Iraq will face the justice he denied to millions. America's biggest mistake was yet to come, the false elision of Saddam's Iraq with the Al-Qaeda movement. This was a militant Islamist sect that had its roots in the Saudi and American-backed Arab fighters who had joined Afghanistan's resistance against the Soviet Union. So when the Americans drew in secular nationalist Iraq to what had been a targeted counter-terrorism campaign, they created a cauldron of chaos that remains to this day in that country, and a cauldron which Iran was perfectly poised to exploit. In series one, we heard from David Kilcullen, the architect of modern counterinsurgency theory. In my view, the most severe strategic misjudgment was the US decision to invade Iraq in 2003. It completely undermined the credibility of the US effort against terrorism more broadly in the eyes of many people. It also created the dynamic of overstretch in Iraq that made the US unable to respond when things went bad in Afghanistan and elsewhere. But perhaps most importantly, if we had not invaded Iraq, there would be no ISIS today. The emergence of Daesh in the summer of 2014 took many by surprise, but the conditions that give rise to the group were there for all to see. Simon Mabin picks up the story. You've got the ideological message, which appeals for some, and that message is violent, it's destructive. But you've also got the socioeconomic conditions that allow such messages and narratives to resonate. And here we have the presence of what seem to be colonial forces, occupying forces. And by that, I mean the US, the UK, and also the Iranians. I think that's important to note because Iran was engaging with the Saudis in Iraq at this time, in a competition to shape the country's future. But then you've also got the socioeconomic challenges that come from civil war. You've got people fearing for their lives. You've got an increasingly sectarian environment that stems from and shapes the civil war that consumed Iraq at this time. This actually escalated sectarian tension in the region to levels that we had not seen before. There was this fear that a democratic Iraq, tightly allied with the West, would steal the thunder from Saudi Arabia because, you know, Iraq had a bigger population, uh, more natural resources. It's an oil superpower. Many people, especially many Iraqis, believe that this was one of the driving forces behind the terrorist attacks that plagued Iraq, the Sunni terrorist attacks that plagued Iraq between 2003 and 2007, culminating in the rise of ISIS. Where Iran comes in here is that the Iranians had a relationship with Sunni jihadists for a long time. They allowed passage to Al-Qaeda members, for example, between Afghanistan and Iraq. They did this mainly to facilitate forces that are independent from both the Saudis and the Americans that can be a thorn in, in the backside of the Americans in Iraq and elsewhere. At the same time, Iran was kind of sandwiched between Afghanistan and Iraq. And then the Americans came and occupied both. If you lived through, through those years, there was always this fear that Iran might be next. And so 
from this point came a different Iranian strategy. Iran itself changed. Their anxiety was escalated. Their geopolitical anxiety was escalated. Existential anxiety was uh, escalated. And so they went ahead and started to build these networks of militias aligned with them across the region. But don't mention the crimes of Syria's president here. In the nearby town of Suran, we're met by all singing Assad supporting crowds. Most of Syria now. The gist of this is that we all have multiple identities. I mean, I have an identity as a Palestinian. I have an identity as an Arab. I have an identity as a Muslim. And within Islam, I have a certain identity also. And I I also have other identities as someone who's, let's say, middle class, who grew up in the Gulf, who's a refugee. So we all have these multi-layered identities. The question is, why is it that in certain contexts, in certain countries, and in certain periods of historical eras, it's only one of those identities which is weaponized to make a political project. This is me kind of laying the groundwork here to kind of uh, kind of demystify and de-essentialize sect. Because this is important for us because, you know, foreign policy uh, experts and, and, you know, Western politicians would, would have this outside look and they would essentialize a region. Uh, so that's one element. The f- second element is really alliance with the West. You know, these two systems, with, be it Iran or Saudi Arabia, they're both... Uh, they're both authoritarian, they're both misogynistic, they're, they're, they're both patriarchal, they're both repressive. The difference really is that one of them is allied with the West and one of them is opposed to the West. And as a result, there is a proxy war element to this, where the Saudis receive Western uh, arms, Western diplomatic support, Western economic support, while the Iranians do not. More insecurity in Libya will create a greater threat if Daesh and from Saudi Arabia to help extremist Sunnis. It's a recipe not just for attacks on troops, but for civil war. So where are we now? The invisible war has smouldered for four decades. The Iranian Revolution, wars from Afghanistan to Iraq to the shores of the Mediterranean, terrorism exported around the globe. The Iranians' power in the region runs through Iraq, Syria and on to Lebanon, like a new Persian empire. The Saudi war in Yemen, where they argued that a regional resistance group, the Houthis, were an emanation of the Iranian state, became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whatever the Houthis might have been in 2004, there's no doubt what they are now, supported with Iranian weapons and possibly even special units on the ground. But MBS still holds the whip hand. Both President Biden and Boris Johnson begged the Saudis to help Western countries out after the invasion of Ukraine. And he refused. Saudi Arabia. That represents important progress. And when I see the Saudi leadership tomorrow, I'll be carrying a direct message. I think it was quite a wake-up call for many people um, when they realized that Saudi Arabia, as well as other uh, partners in the wider Middle East and North Africa region, including, for example, the United Arab Emirates, um, Egypt, and so on, um, basically were extremely reluctant to side with uh, uh, Western partners um, and against Russia amid its invasion of Ukraine. Instead, what we found out is that um, the Saudis in particular led a front resisting calls coming from different sides 
to really support um, energy security needs and the needs of stabilizing energy prices for uh, the West in general. So it basically slowly emerged that Saudi Arabia was actually using this time and this opportunity to demonstrate uh, publicly that even the United States cannot make the Saudi leader a pariah. Even when America developed its own shale oil reserves, they were still beholden to the Saudis in some way, as Helen Thompson tells us. The question of what happened to Saudi Arabia during the 2010s is very important. I spend quite a bit of time talking about it in disorder. One of the profound effects of the American shale oil boom that was geopolitically disruptive was that when you move from a world in which there were two large oil producers in the world, Saudi Arabia and Russia, and they were rivals, um, to a world in which there are three, then the one who has basically been calling the shots until that point, Saudi Arabia, uh, is in a very difficult um, position. So one of the outcomes of the shale oil boom was OPEC+. Plus. One of the interesting things that happened in the sort of very beginning of the pandemic was really the breakdown of OPEC um, plus disagreements between Putin and Mohammed bin Salman about how to react to the crash in Chinese demand for oil. And notably, it was Donald Trump who put OPEC plus back together and for a while pushed the United States into it too. So actually you had this extraordinary moment really sort of in the middle of 2020 where the United States and Russia and Saudi Arabia were all cooperating to try to put a floor on oil prices because oil prices being as low as they fell was in in nobody's interest. But unsurprisingly, that kind of relationship between the three principal oil producers, even leaving aside the personalities involved, was hardly going to be um, stable. The Saudis learned two things from the Trump era. One, that the US couldn't be relied on to secure the Saudi oil fields against Iranian attacks. The second thing was that they could buy the White House, and it wasn't costing them very much. When in 2019 there were missiles and drones attacks against Aramco oil infrastructures in Saudi Arabia and the United States under a Trump administration failed to respond to that attack, um, it was clear that um, the U.S. deterrence umbrella was, uh, if you wish, uh, leaking. And that certainly pushed the Saudis to realize that if they couldn't count on an ironclad uh, uh, U.S. security umbrella, they, they should better develop some alternative ways of restraining Iranian aggressions. And this was an excellent opportunity from a Saudi point of view to sort of force Biden's hand into welcoming back Mohammed bin Salman in the international politics forum. But we haven't yet talked about climate change. Does the power of hydrocarbon energy persist in an age of net zero ambitions? There is a common problem, which is that all of the regimes in the Gulf don't seem to understand the political value of um, addressing the climate crisis. This is a a really interesting question that I'm not sure that um, many people, if anyone really is quite, can get their heads around. And some of it turns on what governments, uh, particularly perhaps in the West, mean by net zero and how much work they think the net is going to do. Beyond that, how much work is reduced energy consumption going to do? 
Now, I suspect, I haven't got any hard evidence this is the case, that the, the view in Riyadh and Moscow is, is that the net's going to be doing quite a lot of work if there's any chance of getting there and that there's still going to be quite a, you know, um, a demand for oil, and particularly in the transportation sector, but also in petrochemicals where demand has still been um, rising. So if you say, just like let's say for the argue, sake of argument, the world was using 100 million barrels of oil a day in 2019, the year before the pandemic, and you say like in 2050, okay, it will be down to even like a third of that. That's still quite a lot of oil that's got to be produced somewhere. So I think that there will be actually, for the medium term, quite a competition as to who's the last last men standing, so to speak. Could this lead to an opportunity, though? There have been intermittent talks between the Saudis and Iran. And of course, as we've already seen, when they both want to surge the oil price, they can agree to do that. I think the end goal is still the 2001 um, agreement, which was a security agreement that basically put black on white the limits of each other's interference in the respective spheres of influence. The Saudis sort of came in offering a lot, arguably, but also asking for a lot. They wanted to get the Iranians to commit to... um, cut their military support for the Houthis in Yemen. And in exchange for it, the Saudis offered re-establishing diplomatic relations, triggering economic uh, relations, uh, starting from trade, but also investment, climate assistance from Saudi Arabia to, to Iran, especially investments into environmental security technologies. And they were very, very frustrated that they the Iranians wouldn't even raise the issue of Yemen. So given that the U.S. is now sort of sponsoring a regional security architecture that features defense cooperation, especially at the level of uh, air defense between Israel and a number of Arab countries, including Saudi Arabia, will that be seen as a provocation in Iran and sort of lead to the collapse of these bilateral talks with the Saudis? Or will the Iranians be smart enough to offer some kind of breakthrough on Yemen specifically that could really uh, make, make this engagement more sustainable and concrete? So where are we in 2022? Saudi Arabia has stated publicly that it would respond in kind to any weapons development from Iran. My name is Kelsey Davenport. I'm the Director for Nonproliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association. I think we're absolutely at a flashpoint when it comes to proliferation writ large. And some of that stems directly from the current crisis that we're facing with Iran and its nuclear program. When President Trump declared his intention to withdraw the United States from the agreement, despite acknowledging that Iran was complying with the accord, he received support from the Gulf countries. What the past several years have proven is that there is no effective strategy to push Iran back to the table to negotiate an agreement that would be stronger, that would be more effective than the JCPOA. You know, unfortunately, you know, negotiations have stalled. But we are not going to wait forever. 
Tehran doesn't even have to complete a nuclear arsenal. They don't even have to build a bomb. You know, all of this allows Iran to move much more quickly to a nuclear weapon. So that existential threat, I think, shadows these relationships. And because Iran is closer to a nuclear weapon than it's ever been, and there is a real risk now of military conflict. If they continue to develop their nuclear program, the free world will In many situations in politics, the, the choice really isn't between good and bad. It's really between bad and very bad. This is really what comes into mind when thinking about how to deal with the Iranian regime versus the Saudi regime, because the Saudi regime, I mean, especially with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, you get the sense that the Saudis have out-eviled the Iranians here. The argument in 2013, 2014 was like, if you normalize with the Iranian regime, it will not need to be that aggressive anymore. Maybe Iranians will not cross the nuke threshold. But we're not in 2013, and the Iranians will always be on edge because they'll always continue to be on edge, afraid that the deal will still be broken, like it was the first time. And then its enemies will attack. What we'll get at best, at the best, is some kind of Cold War. So this is, this is, bad but this you know let's consider the other situation you know where both sides are prepping for hot war either it could be something limited but deeply devastating kind of like the yemen war maybe we we see something like that in parts of iraq or lebanon the region unfortunately cannot handle it because the region cannot handle more waves of refugees it might end up being the first domino and further state collapse beyond these countries this is one situation the other situation is we have something that's more widespread more like a regional world war Maybe like an American president comes along, similar to Trump in his, in his politics, and he's greenlights an Israeli attack in an attempt to stop an Iranian bomb. Iranian proxies will then devastate many Gulf nations. Dubai can be devastated, Abu Dhabi can be devastated. It will also target Israeli population centers. The Gulf nations will not be able to recover. We can't afford to roll it back. We can't really roll it back anytime soon because the status quo is now long-term. But these, unfortunately, these are the situation. I think if I, if I want to like summarize this, I feel that the Iranian regime has actually won its 2013 to 2022, 21, 22, I guess, confrontation. Its enemies were unable to push back its influence in Yemen or Syria or Lebanon or Iraq or to threaten Iran proper. They haven't been able to. We will have to switch from, we got to destroy them by any means possible to, we have to accept that this is the status quo. It's infuriating, really, because the West could have supported the Arab Spring in 2011. The West could have supported the Syrian uprising in 2011. They could have stopped the Iranians, you know, by stopping Assad. They could have not sold out the Syrian uprising in 2013 with, with inviting, basically, the Iran deal and then inviting, uh, you know, inviting the Russians into the region. They could have avoided intervening in Yemen's revolution, which, end, which ended up with the Yemen war and creating a space for the Houthis there. They could have not invaded Iraq and Afghanistan, so we were not, we're not in this reality. But these things happened. You know, here we are now. Uh, but yes, public perception here is whichever way you're allied with the wrong people, because the Saudis are just as repressive as the Iranians are. It's just that they have better PR and they have this profitable relationship with the West. The West does not have clean hands over here. And I, I think, especially with like these two events that happened recently in the last, in the last few months, of course, the, the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, and then the infamous fist bump between Biden and, and MBS, they've really 
shot themselves in the foot when it comes to any kind of soft power in the region for, for, for many decades to come, for a generation to come, I would say. But let's not forget, both of these countries have large, young populations. They are not without agency, whatever the rulers might prefer. Iran is currently convulsed with protest after the death in custody of the young woman Masa Hamini, whose supposed crime was not wearing her hijab correctly. My name is Frida Gittis. I am a longtime journalist. I was on staff for CNN for many years as a producer and correspondent. This uh, September, the world and Iran, more importantly, found out that a young 22-year-old woman with no known uh, medical conditions was detained by the morality police, uh, taken into custody, and then suddenly she was, uh, she was hospitalized with brain injuries. And all the indications we have are that uh, she was killed by the morality police. And uh, it's probably not the first time this has happened, but it came at a time of, um, of exasperation, frustration, anger, uh, accumulated, built up, and women erupted in, with a fury that we really had not seen before. We know Iranian women had pushed the, the, the headscarf a little bit farther back in their head and let a, little, a few strands of hair show and more makeup. Now they're just ripping it off and, and, and brandishing it like a flag of freedom. We saw protests in 2009 after a stolen election. Uh, then we saw protests in 2019 over high prices, over economic conditions. But this protest in particular really strikes at the heart of what the Islamic Republic is. You know, this is women saying we've had enough. We've had enough of this, this imposition, this suppression, this uh, second-class citizenship status. And they are, you know, they're Taking off the hijab, they're burning it, uh, dancing, dancing as they as they burn the hijab. Something that would have been a uh, reason to to go to prison, and in fact, still is. Um, and men who are also frustrated, angry, and and exasperated, they've ready for change, are joining in in these protests, which are not just about hijab and not just for women. They are about the regime, about the about the theocracy and about the need for change. And it's no no surprise, it's no wonder that one of the one of the chants is death to the dictator. It's an extraordinarily defiant gesture telling the regime, go ahead, try me, try me. And they're doing this with no weapons. They're saying you know, the, the, their, their dignity, their defiance and their, their rage and their courage is their weapon. And the regime right now is looking off balance. Iranian people are facing guns and bullets, but they decided in their mind, they're not going to give up their fight against the Islamic Republic. So is this an Arab Spring moment, or will it be quashed like all the other protest movements in this troubled region? 
that's the reason why there are so many people outside of Iran that are, who are watching this so closely. What happens in Iran has an enormous impact beyond its borders. For example, the other factor that you mentioned is rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia. It's a long-standing rivalry between Sunnis and Shiites. What happens in Iran as a result of this, uh, this uprising or as a result of anything else that happens in Iran will have some impact on how that rivalry plays out. There is a a human yearning for freedom, a human yearning against uh, tyranny. Uh, and to the extent that this is what we're seeing here, maybe we can say that this is a, a corollary or a, you know, a, a, a late uh, blooming of what we call the Arab Spring. And of course, Iran is not an Arab country, but it's, you know, it's part of the, the, the push in the region, of, especially from many young people, for more freedom, for, for some kind of modernization. Uh, you know, the, the interesting question is how this would be viewed by the monarchies in the region, because they don't like to see uh, social unrest. On the other hand, I don't think they dislike seeing the Islamic Republic, that, that regime, be under pressure. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine, but you see these young women taking off a headscarf in the street in downtown Tehran, and this could have reverberations across the globe at the highest level of geopolitical strategizing. It helps us see how, the, how everything is interconnected in this world. So what's the future for this region? It's time the West accepts it can't control these countries. So there's a lot of different ways this can go. We've seen over the past year or two that the Saudis and the Iranians have been engaging with one another on a number of different issues with the aim of finding a diplomatic solution to their ongoing tensions. Because neither state wants an escalation. Neither state wants to continue like this in the status quo. After all, the Saudis are spending billions of dollars a month on the war in Yemen and on security that they need to put their Vision 2030 into operation. In Iran, of course, you've got people who are really struggling amidst very serious socioeconomic crises. You've got women on the streets protesting against the increasingly draconian rule of the state. And there is rising frustration, rising anger. And at the same time, the state continues to put money into groups like Hezbollah and into funding for militant groups across the region. And so it's not in anyone's interest for this rivalry to continue in such a vitriolic way. There was a piece written recently by an Iranian and a Saudi researcher who work with me at Lancaster, Iyad al-Rafai and Samira Nazirzadeh, who are both based at Lancaster, and they made the argument that it's actually beneficial for both states to put aside their political and security differences to work with one another. But of course, it's not very easy to do, given the number of different spoilers, given the number of different arenas that the two are engaging in from Bahrain to Iraq, to Syria, to Yemen, to India, to Pakistan and to Indonesia. And as a result, there's lots of different moving parts that need to be resolved. And that, I think, is the really important thing here, that so many opportunities have been missed because of that inherently conservative desire for self-interest over broader respect for human rights, people's rights and democracy. Yes, and I think it's the syndrome of the boiling frog. You're in the hot water, in the warm water, and you don't realize the temperature is going up until it's too late. And you look back decades later and you ask, what happened to us? Which is the question with which I opened the book. And it's a question on the minds of a lot of people 
in the region, including the younger generation. The Saudis who, you know, asked their parents, uh, you know, what the hell were you thinking? Why didn't you push back against all these changes that, you know, stunted our, our growth as a country, as a culture, that turned back some of the bit of progress that was happening in the 60s and 70s for girls, for women, um, for schools, for uh, education, uh, for radio and television. And in Iran, um, you know, you hear often the younger generation, you know, asking their parents and grandparents, what were you thinking when you cheered for the Ayatollah Khomeini? But in the moment, people didn't quite understand what they were, in a way, signing up for. I, I really think, for me at least, it's important to look at things in a global context. When you look at 1979, it wasn't just a turn towards conservative values in the Middle East. It was the beginning of the era of Thatcher in the UK and the election of Ronald Reagan in the US. And that was a turn towards conservatism as well. When I think about the future, or when I think about what people want in their future, I look at trend lines around the world, and I look at uh, places like Hong Kong, where the hopes of a whole generation are being crushed. So when I look at the younger generation in the Middle East, I see them as part of a whole, of, of, a, of a global trend line um, where they're also going to have to fight for not just having a job, but having their freedoms. This retreat of freedoms is, is everywhere. It's not just in, in the Middle East, it's in Hong Kong, it's in Afghanistan. You could argue that it's in, in, it's in the US, it's in Brazil. I think we're living through a moment of, of reckoning, an inflection point around the world where the inevitable progression towards progressive values and democracy, which we thought was, you know, the way to go in the 90s, turns out to be much more complicated and much more arduous and can suffer real setbacks. Democracy is not a static thing and it's under threat, it can come under threat anywhere. The fact that this is an invisible war has sometimes suited foreign powers. In Yemen, in the first years after 9-11, America was able to experiment with new military hardware, knowing that there was little chance of serious scrutiny. Drones, unmanned aircraft, enabled an undeclared conflict, a war against an abstract enemy, and that led to a troubling shift in the norms of armed conflict. As we embrace ever more controversial technologies, join me next time as we investigate the doomsday weapons. Science fiction is full of robots who seeming only purpose and desire is to hunt people and drive them to extinction, which makes the actual existence of armed, pound-shaped robots feel really ominous. You know, terrorist groups didn't used to have air forces, right? This was collateral damage. If you want to hear the next episode right now, subscribe to Patreon. 
For early access, bonus content and much more besides, search Patreon Doomsday Watch before it's too late. Doomsday Watch was written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Robin Lieburn, with assistant production from me, Jacob Archbold. Theme tune and original music is by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production.